This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be discussing Bohemians West, Free Love, Family and Radicals in 20th Century America, published earlier this year by Heyday Press and authored, of course, by Sherry Smith. Professor Smith is a University Distinguished Professor of History Emerita at Southern Methodist University. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Smith. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me. So before we dive into the questions, can you talk a little bit about the striking image selection for the cover? Yes, it was um, an interesting conversation I had with the design people at Heyday Books about what to put on the cover. They wanted to use a photograph, of course, of the couple who are the featured figures in the book and in the story. And we really didn't have a lot of options uh, for many years early in the relationship, which is the free love relationship at the heart of it. They were not photographed together. So we had to go to um, a later in life uh, photograph. So it's, it was taken um, on the Cats, the estate that they eventually lived on near Los Gatos, California. They're embracing each other, looking quite happy. Uh, It relays to the reader that this is a story that does have some happy aspects to it. And so that's uh, why we selected it. And I have to laugh. A friend of mine uh, said, gee, this is a love story. They they look kind of old. He said, I can see how the ARP, the American Association of Retired People, are really going to like this book. So um, that's the story of how it came to be. We were looking for a picture of the two of them, uh, one that conveyed happiness and love. And this was the one that we came up with. Thank you. So going into the couple, who was Charles uh, Erskine Scott Wood prior to meeting Christian socialist Sarah Bard Field in Portland, Oregon? If you can, please address his relationship with his father, who was a free soil Democrat, I believe, and O. Howard, as well as. Erskine Scott Wood's burgeoning anarchist ideas, which Emma Goldman apparently ridiculed as affluent support for labor in the Pacific Monthly. Okay, that's quite a question, and I'll try to keep it, uh, you know, fairly short and succinct. Uh, Charles Erskine Scott Wood, that's a name, that's a rather long one, but he went by Erskine among the family. Erskine Wood was the son of a naval officer and medical doctor who became the Surgeon General of the Navy in the 19th century. So Erskine was born in 1852. He was born before the Civil War. Um, His father had very strong ideas about what his children should become. And in the case of Erskine, who was his second son, he decided that Erskine should go to West Point and become an army officer. 
Erskine's ideas of himself were quite different, actually. He really wanted to be a poet, but he was a dutiful son. And after meeting Ulysses Grant, his father arranged for the interview with the president of the United States. Only after that interview, actually, did Erskine learn what, it, what the purpose of it was. Uh, he went off to West Point, and so he became an army officer graduating in 1874. But he was a reluctant soldier from the start, and he stayed in the army for about 10 years. Uh, I, I actually learned about him when I was studying the uh, Indian Wars of the 19th century and looking at particular officers' experiences and thoughts on fighting the wars. And he really stood out for me in that study because he was so different from the rest of his colleagues. He not only was a reluctant soldier, but he actually sympathized with the Nez Perce, for instance, during the Nez Perce campaign, and eventually befriended Chief Joseph and sent his son to live with Chief Joseph for several summers rather than sending his son to West Point as his father had sent him. So that's the, his childhood in a, in a sort of nutshell. He eventually left the army to become a lawyer, and he ended up going to live in Portland, Oregon. Uh, there's a strong um, indication that his turn gradually by middle age toward philosophical anarchism, which was how he defined his political position, uh, was in part stemmed from resistance to a very strong patriarchal uh, family uh, and a father who was quite domineering, a resistance to the military, a resistance to government itself. Uh, even though he made his living uh, you know, working with the federal government and the wonderful land grants that were given to some of his clients and all of that. Uh, in his personal life, his personal philosophy, he embraced individual freedom as the sort of highest goal in life and resistance to uh, both government and state and church and all of those above. Um, so he he lived a, a, what might appear to be a conventional life, but he was also quite public in his political inclinations toward anarchism, and in terms of personal life, toward free love, the resistance of marriage and family, even though he remained married. Uh, so he was a kind of bundle of, I don't know if you call them contradictions, but uh, sort of a divided self between what he was doing to make a living to support his wife and family, and who he really was, which was a poet, a bohemian, um, a radical, and trying to balance those two things in his life there's a lot about who this man was and what he was trying to achieve. Uh, you mentioned Oliver Otis Howard. He was one of his uh, mentors in the army. Howard really liked Wood. Wood was charming, uh, literate, incredibly handsome. Um, and, and Howard took him under his wing up in the Pacific Northwest, which is where uh, Wood spent most of the time when he was in the army. And so um, he helped him uh, in his career in the army. He helped get him a posting at West Point itself. And while he was there, one of his jobs was to greet visitors to the campus. And one of those visitors was Mark Twain. And so uh, Wood got to actually host Mark Twain in his own quarters there. Uh, he was delighted, of course, to, to meet this very famous author and uh, enjoyed at least that particular moment in his army experience. He, he very much enjoyed and he owed it to his mentor, Oliver Otis Howard. So we've actually encountered uh, Charles Erskine Scott Wood before on this podcast for another study. Yeah. So ah. in, <laughs> in the context of his poetry and endorsement of Woodrow Wilson in the election of 1912, please elaborate on Wood's aim to lessen the, quote, powers of government in order to compel, quote, collectivism, which is essential for social life 
to be based on self-interest or voluntary cooperation? Why not socialism? And how did Wood present these ideas to his law firm clientele? He uh, found philosophical anarchism, and I want to stress the philosophical part because he distinguished himself from anarchists who in the public mind of his time and perhaps today as well, were perceived as people who were bomb throwers and inclined to use violence. And he was very much opposed to the use of violence uh, for political purposes. He was even opposed to being part of the military institution, which used violence to affect what he saw as conquest of Native people. So um, he was a philosophical anarchist because he believed, as I already said, that individual freedom and liberty was the most important sort of value to pursue in politics and in life. And socialism, from his point of view, required too much government involvement. So if we have the government owning the means of production, uh, then there's a problem with that. He didn't like government restrictions and things like that. So that's why he was not a socialist. Uh, he didn't despise socialists by any means. He understood that they shared many of the same goals, which was to achieve greater justice and economic equality in American society. But his own personal cup of tea was anarchism because it valued individualism uh, more than collectivism and a personal freedom over um, you know, government uh, institutions. Um, bureaucracies and so forth that might inhibit individual freedom. On the other hand, you know, he was also a realist. So although he was a philosophical anarchist, uh, he also was a man who lived in the real world. And so he, uh, when he looked at presidential elections, he would look at the options and see which was closest to his ideal. And in 1912, it was Woodrow Wilson. Uh, over Theodore Roosevelt, for instance. And it was an interesting, one of the issues that mattered to him was that Wilson was more of a free trade anti-tariff person. And Wood's father had been deathly opposed to tariffs and uh, Wood agreed. And Theodore Roosevelt, on the other hand, was supportive of tariffs. So it's sort of an odd issue, uh, but one that mattered to Wood and that brought him into the Woodrow Wilson camp. He also thought that... Um, Wood, in the long term, was more sympathetic to genuine progressive reform. And, you know, Wood, living in Oregon, where progressive reform was a big part of the political system there, was an advocate of that sort of thing. So he had his philosophical position, but and he wrote a great deal in, in uh, publications about this. I don't know whether he talked specifically to his clients about it. If they asked him, he would probably tell them how he felt. Uh, but he had this p philosophical position, and then he had you know, what he did in everyday realistic life. And that involved campaigning for Woodrow Wilson. So on that note, the other side of the equation here, who was Sarah Bard Fields prior to meeting Charles Erskine Scott Wood in Par Portland, Oregon? If you can, please address her embrace of Christian socialism, her sister's relationship with Clarence Darrow, and her first meetings, as well as that introduction to free love with Wood. Sarah Bard Fields, was 30 years younger than Charles Erskine Scott Wood. She was uh, the, the daughter of, of a man who was essentially a sort of salesman for a grocery business uh, and also uh, a Baptist uh, member of the Baptist church, quite uh, strict um, in his approach to religion, quite um, like Wood's father, uh, the, the head of the household, uh, and, and the man who, at least from her recollections of her childhood was not particularly loving 
um, and, and really quite dictatorial and sometimes even cruel in the context of the household and family. So here's something that, that uh, Erskine and Sarah have in common is a father who was quite domineering, and they both resisted that sort of uh, patriarchal power uh, as children and, and into their uh, adulthood. So anyway, um, the interesting thing was that she had an older sister, Mary, who was quite the rebel, uh, but, her, but the father uh, really uh, understood that Mary was a very talented young girl, and so he allowed her to go out to the University of Michigan. And there, of course, she takes a lot of courses, and those courses begin to actually encourage her rebellion against her father, particularly his religious orientation. So when Sarah uh, is ready to go to college, she's hoping that she gets to go to the University of Michigan as well, but her father will not allow that because it had come between uh, Mary and her religious upbringing. So uh, he told Sarah if she wanted to go to college, she had to go to a Christian college and so she did not want to do that. So as she later presents it anyway, she, her act of rebellion against her father was to get married right after she graduated from high school. But the man she married was a Baptist minister who was 13 years older than she was. Uh, so that you know, it looks a little bit odd. How can you call this rebellion? But at least she seemed to think it was. It was a way at least to leave home and start a new life. And what this man was offering her was a new life in a very exotic place because he was off to be something of a missionary in Burma. So she goes off to Burma and there really encounters for the first time in her life poverty. And she sees some of the, well, the implications, the outcomes of imperialism in both India and Burma, where the, the British people are taking the, the fruits of people's labors and you know, filling up ships with all kinds of foodstuffs to sell around the world while people are starving in the streets. And so she begins to have a glimmer that this is a complicated world and one that is not necessarily just. And she is quite uh, appalled, actually, at what she sees there. And she finds among the Christian friends there that they are saying, well, the poor will always be with us. And, and so she uh, is not finding that to be very satisfactory. So they, the, the buds of her own uh, radicalism, really, she says anyway, uh, begin in Burma and in India. She comes back to the United States. They had to cut short their mission there uh, for a medical reason. Um, she re, um, reunites with her, with her wonderful sister, Mary, who has become a social worker and a journalist in Chicago. And uh, meets the sister, Mary, meets Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow was something of a rake and had uh, many affairs with women, including Sarah's sister, Mary. So Mary not only resisted her father's uh, religious training, but she becomes one of these bohemian women of the early 20th century who engages in um, an affair or two, including one with the very famous lawyer, Clarence Darrow. Sarah um, and her husband take up a church in Cleveland. Uh, the two of them do share many beliefs about the necessity of helping the poor, and they are offended by the, what they see as the violations of uh, the kind of capitalism that's rampant in that particular time in the early 20th century. So they share a Christian socialism, and that's what gets her husband, Reverend Ergod, in trouble. He is actually fired for his political activities from his church in Cleveland. So they're looking for a new church, and he is called out to a church in Portland. So Sarah is a little reluctant to leave uh, Cleveland for Portland. It seems like a far away, distant, kind of not very sophisticated place. 
And Clarence Darrow, who becomes her friend because of his relationship with Mary, tells Sarah, oh, don't worry. I know a very interesting person out there who I think you will like. And I want you to meet him when you go out there. And his name is Charles Erskine Scott Wood. So Clarence Darrow becomes the person who she, she didn't check out Wood until Darrow actually came to Portland. And then he insisted that uh, the Ergots, their name then, Sarah's name then, meet Wood for dinner. And so Clarence Darrow puts them in the same room. He makes sure they sit next to each other. He understands they will they share uh, political orientation, uh, if not, you know, She's a socialist, he's an anarchist, but they have many things in common. And he is the one who sets in motion the story that takes up the, the love story that takes up the lion's share of the Bohemian's West book. Can you briefly trace Sarah's journey to Los Angeles for the 1911 McNamara, McNamara trial and the Oregon Daily Journal reports that spurred her career? How did this case damage the L.A. labor movement or at least affect it? Well, the, uh, the dinner party. Uh, is an interesting moment for Sarah, much more meaningful for her than for Erskine, I must say. Uh, after the dinner, Erskine invites the group over to his special office, not his law office, but a separate office that he has where he takes care of one particular client, but also has a room set aside for where he is to write his poetry. So even though his, his day job was being a lawyer, he would go off to this separate office and write poetry. He was he would write poetry whenever he could. He was just so driven to be a poet. Well, Sarah was also interested in poetry. And for a brief moment, actually, I won't go into the details, but had got to take a course from a Yale professor of literature on poetry. And he saw in her the potential to be a poet herself, which was really quite an amazing thing to be told, a high school graduate by the Yale professor that she perhaps herself could be a poet. So it's politics and poetry that Wood and um, Sarah talk about that night at dinner. And then he invites everybody to his office. And it's a gorgeous office full of just splendid furniture. And she looks around in awe. This is a man who is not only incredibly handsome, incredibly charming, um, but who loves poetry and surrounds himself with beauty. So she was just, just uh, I think, probably, she claims she didn't fall in love with him at that moment. But I think she was deeply impressed with him. So um, that, that's the beginning of their friendship, which within uh, about six months becomes much more than that. She was unhappy in Portland. Her husband suggests that perhaps Wood could help her find a job or something that would, that would help her develop her own interests, whether it's politics or poetry. So Wood uh, decides, after showing her some of his poetry, that he will hire her to help edit his, his poetry. So that's how the relationship then becomes stronger. She's now kind of working for him as an editor of his poetry. And of course, in, they're in this beautiful office and they're sharing more and more of their lives. And he puts into her hands uh, some books about free love. And she realizes that, uh, that the life, the marriage that she has is not the right one for her. Um, she was already feeling that, frankly, before she met Wood. So I don't want to suggest that Wood is inciting a division. There, she was unhappy in the marriage earlier than that. But what is presenting her with another way to think about marriage and, and even children? And she realizes that, that this freedom is really um, what she needs and that uh, marriage to Reverend Ergot will suppress her and depress her and lead to greater unhappiness. 
So the marriage, I mean, excuse me, so the relationship between Erskine and Sarah then develops uh, and becomes finally consummated in the summer of, of uh, 1911. She realizes that she has to leave her marriage, but she's not ready to do that quite yet. And she doesn't really know how to tell her husband. By the way, she has two small children uh, at this time. Uh, when her son is about nine or 10, her daughter about four or five. But she, she feels she must, uh, she's for her own sake, for her own health and happiness, has to extract herself from the marriage, but how to do that and how to find a way to support herself. So Wood suggests that she might try journalism. And she is something of a writer and uh, it's not poetry, but at least it's a paying job. And he further suggests that she might want to go down to Los Angeles for the McNamara trial of 1911. Also, Sarah's sister Mary, a journalist, was going to be covering the trial in Los Angeles. And this is a trial that, that your readers may or may not know about. Uh, more radical elements of the labor movement of the early 20th century were willing to use violence or the threat of violence in order to achieve their ends. And so uh, some union people did actually bombed the LA Times office and people were killed uh, in this. And several of the, the ringleaders of the event were eventually uh, found and indicted and brought to trial in Los Angeles. So this is the trial of the McNamara brothers, the names of the two people that were charged with this uh, horrific event uh, in 1911. And so I think, I don't know for sure, but I think that Wood actually that his friends at the Oregon Daily Journal to, uh, to print Sarah's dispatches from the trial. And I think he was probably footing the bill for her. So this was a moment for the first time in her life that she actually is on her own. Uh, she goes down to Los Angeles, does share uh, a little apartment with her sister, Mary. So she's not totally on her own. And for the first time in her life, she, she tries uh, to find a profession for herself. Clarence Darrow, uh, by the way, was defending the McNamara brothers. And so she got to see Clarence Darrow and Mary's relationship up close. This is a, a free love uh, relationship, uh, which she sees as quite different from her own with Wood, but we don't need to go into that now. Uh, so this was her attempt to try to see if she could make a living as a journalist. Her writing was rather stiff. She really had no experience. Wood was editing things rather heavily before he would then take them over to the newspaper office. She uh, didn't feel especially comfortable or good at this, uh, but, but she tried, um, and at least it was a first step toward uh, finding some way in which she might be able to support herself. At the, the, end of, the trial ended, actually, with the McNamara brothers deciding to make a plea deal for their lives. And so after a couple of months down in California, she returns to Portland and to her home with Ergot. Why did Sarah become involved in the Oregon chapter? of the College <clears throat> of Equal Suffrage League and the Nevada suffrage movement? And what was her public and private view on race and suffrage? In addition, how did she garner support for women who wished to remain in the domestic sphere? When she returned to Portland, she was really pretty depressed about going back into this home of great unhappiness, but could not quite see what step to take next. Wood, on the other hand, was encouraging her to extract herself from the marriage with promises of eventually 
being able to do the same uh, and that they would be able to have a new wonderful life together where they would write poetry and so on. Wood, I should add, uh, was married to a woman who he'd been married to since the 1870s. They had five adult children who themselves were married by this time. She was a Southern woman, a very genteel woman. Uh, she was also Catholic. And she knew that Wood had these ideas about free love and that he acted upon them. He had that series of affairs with other women, which she knew about. Uh, I'm sure she suffered a great deal of pain because of them. But she told him she would never divorce him. So uh, he had his own issues to sort of work out uh, in his own family context. But as far as Sarah was concerned, uh, he was encouraging her to try to extract herself from the marriage. And she, of course, still needed to be able to have some way of making a living. She did not want to be dependent upon Wood for money. Although the reality is that she was and would be for some time to come. But she was, in her heart of hearts, a genuine feminist who did not like the idea of depending upon any man for her livelihood. Now, what she was doing for Wood, what he was paying her for, was the editing of his poetry. But frankly, he was giving her a lot more money than she was earning uh, from that. He was putting the bill down in LA, for instance, and would uh, put the bills in times to come. So she's looking for another way to demonstrate that she can make a living on her own. And at this moment in 1912, Oregon is considering whether or not to enfranchise women. The suffrage movement for many, many decades was a very piecemeal process that was accomplished on a state-by-state basis. And Oregon had several times before 1912, the, the men of Oregon who were the voters had rejected suffrage. But 1912 was, I think, the third or, or fourth effort to finally achieve women's suffrage in Oregon. And so the, um, there was a number of different groups that were involved in this, including the College Equal Suffrage League. And Sarah had a friend who belonged to that league. And she said to Sarah, you know, I think you'd be really terrific as a person who goes around the state and, uh, you know, talks to people about uh, suffrage. So would you consider a job uh, with our league to become kind of an advocate for suffrage and travel and speak to people and form local suffrage organizations and clubs and things like that? So Sarah just leaped at the chance to do this. First of all, of course, she totally supported the idea of women's suffrage. Secondly, it would provide her an opportunity to leave her increasingly uh, difficult household and marriage. Third, her husband, who may have had some glimmerings about wood, but claimed didn't seem to at this particular point anyway, uh, supported women's suffrage. And he supported Sarah in her effort to have a life that was meaningful and fulfilling for her. So that's how she came to, to get the job. And uh, she absolutely loved it most of the time. I mean, sometimes, you know, travel can be very tiresome. And she was traveling all over the state, particularly the eastern sections of Oregon and into very small towns. But she was quite a good orator. Her sister Mary was a good orator. Wood was very well known as an orator. She had seen both of these people give speeches. And so I think she learned, maybe through osmosis, maybe by uh, conscious choice, uh, to mimic both her sister Mary and Erskine as orators. And so she was traveling all around the state and, and loving the opportunity to 
advocate for suffrage to meet fellow travelers who shared her point of view, and even to challenge those who did not to think uh, about why they opposed suffrage. And one of the kind of fun things about this is that by this time, automobiles were a part of American life. They were new, but they were a part of it. And so she did not drive a car, but she would have uh, compatriots who would meet her in these small towns. And one of the things they would do is go downtown at like five o'clock in the evening when men were getting out of work and she would climb up on top of the car and start to give kind of a street corner uh, speech about suffrage from the top of an automobile. And she was young, she was attractive, and there was a woman on top of a car. I mean, it was really a great combination that drew crowds, not always sympathetic, but never openly hostile. Um, so she was very, very much involved in that. And, and happily, uh, they were successful in uh, the election of 1912, a suffrage passed. Now, you asked uh, about race. She did go to uh, an African-American church at least one time that I know of in Portland. So African-American men could vote in Oregon in 1912. African-American women could not, but men could. So she was going to this church to encourage the, the men of the congregation to support suffrage. And she gave a very compelling speech about how her father you know, had fought in the Civil War and that many men, um, had white men, had had gone to war, this is at least her argument, to free the slaves and for them to have freedom and citizenship and, and that sort of thing. So she was there now to ask them to repay uh, those uh, that debt, as she called it, and uh, do what they could to make sure that women could vote in this country as well. So it was a very good speech. Um, she claimed that you know there was a moment of silence and then an uproarious sort of applause after she finished. And all of that was to the good. But in her letter to Erskine about it, she made some comments about um, the smell. Uh, I mean, it was it was so disappointing to me uh, that she had such a sort of crude and frankly racist feeling about those men and women in that congregation. So she could talk the talk of, you know, racial equality and uh, you know, celebrate that black men were able to vote in Oregon and make all those arguments that we would consider appropriate. But privately, she was revealing that she had a long way to go in terms of seeing them as human beings and, uh, you know, that thoughtless racism that creeped out in that letter uh, was disappointing to me. In terms of um, uh, her ideas about women and the domestic fear, Sarah had no trouble with women who were perfectly happy being wives and mothers. Uh, she been perfectly happy in her marriage. She may never have uh, gone out on the stump for suffrage or tried the LA Times journalism gambit. But she was certainly not hostile to the idea that women had a very, very important role to play in society as wives and mothers. And in fact, often in her speeches on suffrage, she would make the point that the reason why women needed to vote is because of their very important roles as wives and mothers, particularly mothers, and that many political issues that were being debated and decided upon in society had to do with children and the home and the family. And so women, since their role was so crucial in those arenas, should be able to participate in those discussions as well as in the decision-making process as voters. So she embraced... Uh, maternalism and the role of women in the home. 
did not look down upon women who chose that, uh, who, uh, for whom that was really the major uh, option available to them. So she did not think that all women should be journalists or that all women should be something for suffrage. But she did think that all women, regardless of whether they had uh, a happy and you know, fulfilling life in the home or outside of the home, should be able to vote. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why did Alice Paul hire Sarah for the Congressional Union exhibit at San Francisco's Panama Pacific International Exposition? And how did Sarah navigate the politics of CU opposition to the Democratic Party? And what was Erskine's stance on all of this? When the election of 1912 was over and suffrage won and Woodrow Wilson won, uh, Sarah and Erskine were very happy about the outcome of their political campaigning. Uh, Erskine, by the way, traveled quite a bit to the Pacific Northwest during the fall of 1912 on behalf of Woodrow Wilson's campaign. So they were often on parallel tracks, the railroad tracks, going crisscrossing Oregon. Uh, Erskine went on into Idaho uh, on their separate political fence. Uh, and, and the other advantage to this was sometimes they were actually able to secretly meet, like in Hood River, Oregon, for example, for, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, moments together. Uh, but so they were happy with the outcome of the election. But Sarah, of course, returns once again to her home. And by this time, Reverend Ergot does know that Sarah and Erskine are having this affair because Sarah finally wrote him a letter when she was out campaigning to tell him uh, that she was wanted out of the marriage. So she returns home now to a husband who knows what's going on, who's desperately unhappy, trying desperately to get her to reconsider, to stay with him and their children. And it becomes so impossible that she becomes, uh, she gets sick. And uh, Erskine thinks she might have tuberculosis. More likely, the problem was mental, emotional um, health was um, at a really very low point. So Erskine and Sarah and some of her friends who know a little bit about what's going on decide that the best thing for Sarah would be to leave Portland and go down to Southern California for medical help, uh, to go to perhaps a tuberculosis uh, institution where she can get away from the cold, wet Portland climate into the sun and warmth of Southern California and recover from what they are believing or at least making the, the argument that she has tuberculosis. And so uh, Ergot agrees to this, partly because he thinks if she gets out of Portland and down in California, she'll come to her senses and she will realize that to leave her marriage and family for this man is just doesn't make any sense. It's not the best thing for any of them. He doesn't have the money, of course, to pay for this. Erskine is going to be paying for this. But he agrees. And he also agrees to allow her to take their young daughter with her. 
So Sarah goes in October of 1912. Um, no, I'm sorry. She, she leaves by November 1912 to go down to California and try to get some medical help. And uh, as it turns out, she never returns to her uh, husband or, her, or their home there. Uh, so that really is her escape, uh, at least the first step toward a literal escape. Uh, from the marriage. So while she's down there in California, she ultimately does eventually, it takes a long time, but by 1913, uh, 1914, talking much more seriously now about divorce, eventually going to Nevada and uh, to start the divorce proceedings, Ergot fighting her all the way. He does not want it, but ultimately um, she does get the divorce, but at the expense of losing custody of the children. Uh, which was a very difficult thing, a big price for her to pay, but she does it. So she's in California. And in 1915, there's this wonderful World's Fair called the San Francisco Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco. And Alice Paul, who is well known uh, today as the, the creator of the National Women's Party, it wasn't quite called that yet, uh, decides that this is a great place to have an exhibit about women's suffrage. And it's especially important to do one in the West because by this time, California and really almost, I believe all the Western states by this time had achieved women's suffrage at some level. Maybe not for every single office, maybe just for school elections in some cases. But if you look at a map of the suffrage states in 1915, they're all solidly, and you know, they, the Western states have all solidly supported women's suffrage. So the idea that Alice Paul and others had was that we need to use the power of these newly enfranchised women to force the rest of the country to come around and even to support an amendment to the Constitution. The idea at the Pacific uh, Exposition in their exhibit was to have a petition and to have especially women voters signed the petition, but also any men who were interested in supporting it as well, and a petition that demanded a federal amendment to the Constitution. The reason that Sarah got the job was uh, because she got to know a woman named Doris Stevens, and Doris Stevens recommended Sarah to Alice Paul. Sarah, by this time, is living in San Francisco, so she was living nearby. It was a perfect opportunity for her to rejoin the suffrage movement, which had not only provided her in 1912 with um, a, a salary and with the great camaraderie that she felt among the other suffragists in Oregon, she could now recreate that experience. She had been living again, really upon wood here in California, but this allowed her to make some money on her own, to use her own network of friends to get work and to do work that was incredibly satisfying uh, to her. So that's how she ends up there. And um, let's see, you wanted me to say something about the, um, well, the Congressional Union was the name of the organization before it became the National Women's Party. Please trace how Sarah rode in an, uh, I believe, an Oldsmobile across the continent to publicize the federal suffrage amendment in 1915. And if you can discuss uh, President Wilson's and Congress's response when she arrived and who are who are her companions and how did Erskine react? One of the things that came out of this plan to have this petition, and it was a huge piece of parchment paper that by the end, Sarah claimed anyway, it was four miles long and had thousands and thousands of signatures. 
well, okay, so you had this great petition out in San Francisco. What are you going to do with it? Alice Paul's idea was that Sarah should carry it in a car across the continent and deliver it to Congress and also make sure that President Wilson knew about this. So this was an audacious, incredible thing to suggest in 1915, that anybody drive a car across the United States. There were no interstate highways. There were no Rand McNally atlases. And women driving cars was also kind of a novelty at this time. A lot of people doubted that women had the capacity, either mental, emotional, or physical, to handle a car within a town, let alone across the continent. But Alice Paul thought it would be a great idea. It would garner tremendous media attraction, excuse me. <coughs> and so there were these two Swedish women who had this big Oldsmobile. It was a very substantial car that opened up in the top. Uh, and so she suggested that that these two women, these two men were offered to, um, to drive Sarah and another woman named Frances Jolliffe, who had been involved in the uh, suffrage movement in California, to drive them and the petition across the country. And this was a huge event near the close of the Panama Pacific Exposition, and actually a conference, the first time ever of women who are already voting that took place at the exposition at the end of that conference. The, uh, the climax was Sarah and Frances Jolliffe and these two uh, Swedish women driving out of the fairgrounds and into the night, carrying this petition off to Washington, D.C. So it was, as I say, just an incredible idea, quite the adventure. Erskine uh, was not happy about it. He was always concerned about Sarah's health. Uh, they went back and forth about whether or not this was a good thing to do. Ultimately, though, he concluded that, yeah, it would be a good thing for her to do this. It would bring a lot of attention to the suffrage movement. He was a supporter of it. Uh, it would bring some attention to her. And she was also saying, hey, listen, once I'm back east, I'll talk to uh, different publishers about your poetry. So um, he, she convinced him, he agreed, that this was a worthwhile venture. So they took off. And uh, Sarah was not going to drive, nor was Francis. The, the the two Swedish women were going to be the ones who were driving this car. Uh, they got as far as Sacramento, and Frances Jolliffe decided this was not for her after all. So to Sarah's great dismay, Frances quit, uh, and uh, Sarah went on with the two other women, and they tried to keep Frances's departure a secret. Uh, they didn't want people to know that she had uh, bailed out. Uh, so Sarah now and these two women are, are going across the country. They, I have to tell you, did hire a man to drive the car at the highest part of the Sierra because none of them felt confident driving a car over mountains. Uh, but they, they did it. They got uh, to places like uh, Salt Lake where they were met with great enthusiasm um, by the governor and uh, the mayor and the LDS church officials. You women in Utah Territory received uh, the votes uh, just the year after Wyoming, which was the first in 1869 and Utah 1870. So women in Utah were already voting. Um, they came to Wyoming where they were also celebrated. Uh, governors, senators, mayors, everybody signing the petition as well as women voters. When they got into the middle of the country, however, they started getting bogged down literally in the mud sometimes and had to rely upon men to pull them out. Sometimes men were not especially gracious about this, saying if you're so, you know, so independent, why do you need our help? But also running into political um, opposition to um, suffrage as well. In the end, 
They did make it across the country, garnering incredible media coverage, which was, of course, the point. And Sarah becoming something of a national figure because she was the one who was the spokesperson. Whenever they would stop, she was the one who would be covered in the newspaper articles. Even in good old New York City, to see this car was quite a quite quite the rage. It was just a big big deal at the time. <clears throat> they get to Washington, where they're met. There's a big parade as they go up to uh, the Capitol building, and they're greeted there uh, by um, several people, including a the one and only representative from Wyoming, who. Uh, of course, was a supporter of women's suffrage. Um, and then they went on to the White House. And there they met President Wilson, who was a Democrat. He was a Southerner. He uh, was not willing at this stage to come out in favor of a federal amendment. And he made it perfectly clear that although he personally might sympathize with women's suffrage, he was not going to uh, support a federal amendment at this time. So that was sort of the downside of this. Uh, they had hoped that somehow Wilson might come around, but he made it clear uh, in December of 1915 that he was not going to be an ally of theirs in Washington, D.C. How did Sarah's time with Greenwich Village Free Love practitioners, her involvement in the National Women's Party and the 1916 anti-Wilson campaign, as well as Erskine's failed attempts to defend labor, how did this all divide Erskine and Sarah? Well, let me start with the 1916 anti-Wilson campaign and then get around to um, the free love thing. Because Wilson was clearly not going to be an ally of women's suffrage, Alice Paul and the National Women's Party decided that one of their strategies, besides having things like spectacular automobile drives across the country and petitions and so on and media attention, they were going to take a stand in the elections of 1916 against any candidate who opposed women's suffrage, and particularly who opposed the federal amendment for women's suffrage. So this became the political campaign strategy of the National Women's Party in 1916. All across the country, but obviously most especially in the Western states where women were voting, to send out their uh, lieutenants, and Sarah was one of them, to speak to audiences about the necessity of making the federal amendment for women's suffrage the most important issue of the campaign. And so they were urging people to vote against any candidate, regardless of party, who would not support the federal amendment. That meant then that they were urging people to vote against President Wilson. Not that they knew for sure that Charles Evans Hughes would be more supportive, but they do they did know that Wilson was not going to support the federal amendment. And so this put Sarah uh, in opposition actually to Erskine during the fall of, of 1916 during the presidential campaign of 1916, because Erskine, uh, although he supported women's suffrage, thought it was foolhardy to expect people to make the federal amendment for women's suffrage the one and only issue upon which people were going to make their decisions. And they had quite a few uh, very testy exchanges in their letters about, uh, about this issue. Sarah was saying to him, if you were a woman you would understand why we must make this the most important issue of the campaign. And he was saying to her, look, you know, there's war brewing in Europe. Uh, many women, mothers are going to be concerned about that war. President Wilson is promising to keep us out of that war. And so some women, many women maybe, in fact, will vote for him because they see him as the peace candidate. 
And they're willing to put suffrage aside because for them, peace and staying out of the war in Europe is the more important issue uh, for, for, those, for those people. So Sarah was absolutely committed to this strategy of defeating anybody who didn't support the amendment. Uh, Wils, um, excuse me, Erskine um, disagreed with her about the strategy and um, disagreed with her about uh, who should be president of the United States. Let's see. What else did you? Okay. So, um, so that's how they really uh, have really quite bitter uh, debate about this. Uh, I guess uh, I think they both had good points. Um, in the end, Sarah said what she hoped would happen was that the Western states would vote against Wilson uh, because of suffrage, but that Wilson would ultimately still win the election. And that uh, didn't exactly happen. Wilson won the election. He won the election. It was a close one, but it was California that actually put him over the top, a state that had that was rich, actually, in women voters. But many of those women uh, evidently had voted for Wilson, not following the uh, National Women's Party strategy uh, after all. Now, in terms of free love, that's a, a whole other subject here. Uh, Sarah and Erskine saw themselves as practitioners of free love. Uh, he was, I would say, more of an advocate of it. He would sometimes write columns about it. Sarah was not publicly an advocate of it, but certainly, you know, private conversations and with uh, friendships with people, she would support it and, and advocate for it in that kind of way. But she was not nearly as public about it as, as Erskine was. When she went back um, with the petition, she spent some time in New York City. And because her sister Mary, I had friends in Greenwich Village and Erskine had friends in Greenwich Village. That's where she stayed. And so she was able to, uh, and that was sort of the epicenter of American bohemianism and people who were experimenting with all kinds of things, including love relationships and free love relationships. So she was able to uh, see some other examples of uh, free love relationships uh, besides the one that her sister had had with Clarence Darrow. And uh, it provides her with some opportunities to, to discuss this with Wood, with Erskine, uh, through letters. And maybe I should step back for just a minute and say that this whole book rests upon the voluminous correspondence between Erskine and Sarah. There were thousands and thousands of letters between the two of them because over the course of their relationship, particularly the first eight years or so, they were apart almost all the time. They saw each other for brief periods of time, but they were apart a lot more than they were together which gave them the opportunity to write very long letters about a lot of different things and to uh, maintain a relationship that was essentially one of correspondence more than actual uh, uh, physically being together. So in these letters, then, they can work out, at least try to work out, some of the tensions that are beginning to emerge in their own relationship. And it will probably not surprise your listeners that one of the issues that arises in the relationship between Sarah and Erskine as a free love relationship was what does that mean? And what does that mean in particular when it comes to issues of monogamy? Now, Sarah and Erskine were free lovers who put the emphasis on freedom and liberty and choice, but they were not promiscuous. I mean, they were not, you know, randomly just sleeping with whoever, you know, came along. They were essentially, well, they were true to each other except that Wood would not commit to monogamy and in his actual behavior was not living a monogamous life 
Um, and his wife isn't even a factor here, and just in terms of Sarah. Sarah wanted him to be true to her and to her alone. So there is a debate between them about the role of monogamy in a free love relationship. She is arguing that if it's truly the highest sort of love, which she believed they had, that there should be no temptation or interest in, in another partner. And he, um, you know, was arguing that, well, you know, men um, will go, you know, well, you, know, you can't count on men to do that, basically. Uh, so he, he was, he would, I would call him kind of a serial uh, monogamist. I mean, he would have, he had a partner when Sarah wasn't in Portland a couple of different times with women that were longtime partners. Um, so that was a, an issue that came up between them. And she would use the examples of other free love relationships in Greenwich Village uh, in her arguments with him over that. But she always believed that their relationship was uh, higher and better than anybody else's. And she was trying to get him to reach this sort of high level of monogamy uh, that he was a bit resistant. How did the 1918 declaration of war reunite Erskine and Sarah, even if the latter joined the Pacifist People's Council, while the former Erskine seemed to critique the American Federation of Labor more than Wilson? And if you could touch on Erskine's um, encounters with labor, that'd be great. Right. Well, uh, Erskine and Sarah had many, many things in common in terms of their political orientation and point of view. And one of them that they shared was uh, they were anti-imperialists. Wood's anti-imperialists actually had its foundation, I think, in his army experiences in the West. He did see the army, the military, and this, I mean, thoughts about this, I think, grew as he, as he matured, but that he did see the United States as an imperialist force that was conquering Indians and pushing them aside and taking their land. So. His anti-imperialism stems from his own experience in that, but then expands into like, being a critique of the United States' involvement uh, in the Philippines, for instance, after the Spanish-American War. And Sarah's anti-imperialism has its origins in her experiences in, the, in Asia, as, as I indicated earlier in our conversation. So they do see what's happening in World War I as a war that's essentially driven by imperialism. And so they see that the United States should not get involved in a war among European imperialists who are contending with each other for control of Africa, for instance. So they see it as something that does not have anything to do with American interests and, in fact, is antithetical to, to Sarah and Erskine's ideas about um, the, the dreadfulness of imperialism and the tremendous. Uh, pain and um, the sort of, you know, horrible things that it brings to, to people all over the world. So they are very much in agreement that the war is a bad thing and both very disappointed when President Wilson changes course and decides to ask Congress, and Congress agrees, to go to war uh, against uh, uh, Germany in uh, 1918. So, uh, Although they had debated about Wilson and some of his domestic policies when it came to his foreign policy, they were in total agreement and so were both quite outspoken in opposition to the war, both before American entrance and, and after. Uh, Sarah did join the, this uh, People's Council, it was called. Uh, quite uh, uh, brave people, actually. Once the war broke out, it was uh, dangerous, frankly, even more dangerous to. Uh, 
to speak out against the government and to speak out against the war. She wasn't involved for a great amount of time, but she was. Uh, she went to Chicago and, and risked getting uh, arrested there, but uh, managed to not become, uh, not go to jail about that. Um, Erskine, for some reason, um, was especially critical, as you say, of the American Feder- uh, Federation of Labor Leadership for capitulating, as he saw it, to uh, Wilson and the war when he believed that workers and laborers in, the, in this country and in the world were the ones who were actually being victimized uh, by the war. So they, they have a different sort of spectrum of, of you know, where they're going to put their energies. But essentially, they were in agreement uh, about uh, uh, being opposed to the war and then, of course, horrified with what they saw as the suppression of dissent in the, um, during the course of the war and in the years that followed. So there was more to bring them back together in those issues. Uh, than things that had kept them apart. Please describe their meeting in Erskine's New Digs in Marin County and the October 1918 car accident that ended the life of Sarah Sons Albert, as well as the uh, lackluster National Women's Party conventions and ratification of the 19th Amendment. Okay. These questions are great. They throw a lot of things together. And so um, Mm -hmm. I really appreciate how we're getting through a lot of different things. So let me... um, uh, explain then by 1918, the United States is involved in this war and um, it brings bad things. But the thing about Erskine is, you know, he has his, his uh, feet in uh, the real world, including um, a legal case that had gone on for a very long time that he was waiting for it to finally be resolved, which would give him a windfall and that would allow him to finally leave his law practice and even leave Portland and come and live with Sarah. He also was going to make a lot of money because uh, during the war, of course, and he had some lands out in eastern Oregon that were productive, that he was, he was making money from the war, even though he despised the war. So in 1918, he had always said to Sarah, I, I do love you. I do want to come and live with you, but I cannot leave Portland until I am able to assure that my wife and my children have trust funds. And those trust funds will be, uh, I will create them once I get this big windfall from this law case. So finally, all of that comes together in the summer of 1918. He has the money now to to uh, reassure himself that his wife and children will be taken care of. He had a very strong sense of paternal responsibility and, of course, responsibility for his wife, who he loved, but just he loved her in a different kind of a way. Um, so he finally is able to leave Portland and join Sarah in San Francisco. Sarah's husband, by the way, our ex-husband now, eventually lost his pastorate in Portland. Uh, actually, around the same time that Sarah left him, it was a very sad story. I have tremendous sympathy for this man who... Um, was, uh, you know, really not able to control things in his life. I mean, it's always very heartbreaking when a relationship breaks up to be on either side of that equation. But perhaps it's especially heartbreaking when you're the one who is left and there's nothing you can do to, to stop it or change things. But he, he comes down to uh, California and he has a church over in Berkeley across the bay from Sarah, who's living up on Russian Hill. And so by this time, Sarah's Children are across the bay, so she gets to see them. Son Albert, wonderful teenager now, and her daughter. Um, occasionally on weekends, she gets to see them. Well, when Reverend Ergot learned 
that Wood was leaving Portland, he, he became very uh, agitated. He never was, of course, happy with the divorce. And he wrote some really uh, angry letters, actually, to Wood about this, which we haven't had time to go into. But um, when he heard Wood was coming down, he got very concerned. And he told Sarah that she was never to allow her, their children to be in his company. Sarah was not going to live by that uh, dictate by any means. But in the meantime, Wood was sort of cautious. And so he decided that I'm not going to move into the house that he had, you know, rented for Sarah on Russian Hill. For the, for the short term, I'm going to rent a cottage up in Marin, just really north of San Francisco. And well, let Reverend Eyre got cool off and eventually we will uh, live together in the same household. So it is in this situation that he decides, Erskine decides that they really should have an automobile and he doesn't want to drive it. He wants Sarah uh, to learn to drive it. So he buys a car and she's learning to drive it. And one October day, when the children are coming to join her uh, for the weekend, she decides to surprise Erskine up in Marin and bring the kids up to, uh, to, to visit him. So she is just totally, you know, not obeying her ex-husband's uh, command that the children never see Erskine. She believed that that Erskine was a great influence on her children, actually. Uh, and they, um, at least the son in particular, did seem to be enthralled with him. The daughter was a little less sure about him because, of course, you know, she, she saw him as a, her father's rival. But anyway, um, so they go to see uh, Erskine and they have a picnic lunch. But I don't know if you've ever been to the Marin Hills, but they can be uh, particularly challenging if you're just learning how to drive. And um, not to give too much away, but I guess this is a story I'm, I will share with uh, the audience. Um, uh, Sarah is at the wheel and she's backing up and uh, something breaks in the car and, and the car goes over an embankment and down the embankment about 30 feet. And um, the outcome is that her beautiful uh, 17-year-old son um, is killed. So, you know, can't imagine a, you know, a more terrible experience for anybody, but to be at the wheel of a car uh, and your son dies in an accident. And so um, it was a, a terrible, terrible moment. Um, as you can imagine, Reverend Aragot uh, finds this unforgivable um, for Sarah. It creates even more trauma uh, for all of them, uh, including the daughter who witnesses some terrible um, moments between her parents. So I would say this is probably the low point of the story. It takes Sarah, who was also very badly injured, um, probably a year and a half or two years to recover uh, from this accident, both mentally and physically. So a terrible tragedy um, in a story that has more than one tragedy, but this is probably uh, the, the saddest of them all. By 1920, uh, Erskine and Sarah are living together. Erskine bought a house just a few doors down up on Russian Hill. They're trying to uh, recover from this terrible accident. They're really trying to remove themselves from the political world they had been such a huge part of uh, earlier in their lives and in their relationship because they were so dispirited by uh, the Red Scare, by the continued suppression of people, particularly anarchists and socialists and uh, people on the left, labor, free speech, all of these things were really suffering. Uh, 
uh, in the during the war and in the years that followed the war, and they were really really pretty unhappy uh, with the political climate um, of the moment, and so they're trying to. Uh, just sort of recoil or move back from politics and instead embrace poetry and have as guests at their home now uh, artists and sculptors and other poets and musicians and, and retreat into a life of beauty and leave the darker aspects of their personal lives as well as of the political moment behind. But there is one, one area, one arena where they could celebrate a victory, and that was the ultimate ratification of the 19th Amendment of the Women's Suffrage Amendment, which happened in August, the final ratification in August of 2020. So that was one area where they could celebrate something good had come of of their efforts. And uh, a couple of years later, Sarah was actually invited to come back to Washington, D.C. to kind of celebrate not only suffrage, but also um, the National Women's Party. They had a convention there and she was invited to come to, to that. Um, what happens there, though, is she discovers that Alice Paul is not as interested in going with the party in the direction that Sarah had hoped, which was that she was particularly, Sarah, was particularly committed to pacifism uh, in the, at this time and was hoping that the Women's Party would take a much stronger stand on both uh, pacifism at home, but also internationally, that she would, that Alice Paul and the party would take a strong stance on other issues uh, that were important to, uh, you know, women, uh, to hunger uh, in the world, poverty, and so on. Instead, she felt that Alice Paul had backed off and that she was more interested in in having a house, uh, having a building in Washington, D.C. that could be a clubhouse. Uh, She was interested in um, something that she called an equal rights amendment, which Sarah thought was not nearly as important as the grander, more international perspective and politics and problems that Sarah had hoped that she would, that Alice Paul and the party would pursue. So she ends up disappointed with the party and decides that she's not going to be a member anymore. And so she goes back to San Francisco. And that pretty much ends her um, involvement in women's suffrage in, in the National Women's Party. So please briefly discuss both Erskine's and Sarah's purchase of a retreat, The Cats, near Los Gatos, as well as their publishing ventures and Erskine's support for Marie Equi and Dekizo Shiota, the latter missed Second World War internments. I'll, I'll address the, the last part, at least with Marie Equi first. She was a firebrand from Portland, a medical doctor who was a huge, fierce advocate of labor, uh, fiercely anti-war. Uh, a person, also an openly gay woman in Portland in um, the early 20th century, a remarkable personality, very strong uh, figure, and um, became the object of ire among uh, many people in Portland who did not share her politics. And ultimately, just as the war was ending, she was arrested um, under the Aliens, in the, under the Sedition Act, excuse me, <clears throat> she was arrested and um, Ultimately, she was convicted in court for doing nothing other than speaking her rights as a citizenship uh, against the war. She was sentenced to a couple of years at San Quentin. And at this point, her allies and her friends are working hard to help her appeal the case and avoid such a terrible 
uh, a fate for somebody who had just been, you know, exercising their right of free speech. And so Erskine is called back from retirement. He uh, he help he offers to help her, and he does uh, attempt to uh, help her at the in San Francisco or in the appeals court. There gives a wonderful uh, speech about free speech to uh, the judges, but they were not convinced. And so she ends up having to go to jail. And Erskine and Sarah are living on Russian Hill at the time when she's incarcerated in San Quentin. And at least once they go over to visit her and they bring fruit and candy and they bring a copy of uh, one of Erskine's uh, books of poetry. Uh, And they're both, you know, very glamorous. I mean, Erskine was absolutely uh, incredibly stunning looking man, even in old age. And and Sarah was, was attractive. She wasn't beautiful, but she was attractive. And so when they come into the jail, Marie's uh, fellow inmates are just sort of you know, just stunned at that this very interesting and uh, attractive couple coming to see her. Um, so that's the best that they could do for her, unfortunately. They were not able to save her from incarceration. She is eventually allowed out a little bit earlier um, than officially um, imprisoned. Uh, but she goes back to uh, Portland and lives the rest of her life there. But this was the last case, the last time Erskine ever went to court. The other uh, case you mentioned is Takizo Shiota. He was a um, a man that, that Erskine knew in San Francisco, Japanese man, who had a Japanese and Asian import shop in San Francisco that Erskine loved to uh, go to. Erskine loved fine things, as I said earlier was uh, very interested in Asian art and purchased quite a few things from Shiota and uh, also befriended him, had him to his uh, home. Uh, During World War II, as we all know, in the early stages, uh, Japanese and Japanese Americans were incarcerated in these uh, camps, including the entire Shiota family, including his children who were born in the United States and citizens of the United States. Their father was, uh, was taken first and um, sent to a different place than the rest of the family. And the rest of the family appealed to Erskine to try to get him, to get his case reviewed. And so Erskine, he's a very old man by this time, he's in his 90s, uh, does step up. And he writes a couple of letters urging that, uh, to keep, I'm sorry, I'm not doing a good job with his name, Kiko Tekizo, as case be uh, reconsidered. Uh, by the time that happens, the war is almost over, um, but he is able to finally rejoin his family, and the children did greatly appreciate what Erskine had done, they believe, to help make that happen uh, for their dad. So, you know, uh, he was uh, not opposed to the war itself, but this, again, gr- egregious violation of citizenship rights and human rights, he found um, just extremely disturbing. And he did step up very late in life um, in defense of the victims of that. By um, the early 20s, they were realizing, Sarah and Erskine, that their production of poetry was being impaired by living in San Francisco because they were very social people. People loved to come to their house. They were not finding the kind of solitude they believed they needed to write their poetry. And poetry is a minor theme in this book, but an important one because it was what they believed brought them together. It was what made their relationship um, so um, essential that put it on a spiritual plane that other relationships did not have because they were both poets 
who understood the deepest things about life and were trying to, to translate those ideas about life into poetry. So they both, by this time, are trying to write poetry. Sarah is still trying to get Erskine to edit his, to get rid of some of what she sees as the needless preaching, which undermines the poetic effect of his verse. And she is trying to write her own as well. So they ultimately, using, of course, Erskine's wealth, buy some property down near Los Gatos, California. So that's down the peninsula, not too far from San Jose up in the hills between uh, Los Gatos and Santa Cruz. They find some property there, and they, um, when they're still living in San Francisco, frequently would go down for weekends. Eventually, they decided to build a big, there was a fairly rustic house on the premises. They decided to build their own house there and built a beautiful, not huge, but large enough, a beautiful uh, a house on the estate. And that's where uh, they finally move in by 18, I'm sorry, 1925, and live there, uh, Erskine lives there for the rest of his life. It's a um, wonderful property that has remained pretty much as is when they built it. I was fortunate enough to actually get to see it. For people who live in that part of California, when they go on that highway between San Jose and Santa Cruz, they will see along the highway two very large stone cats that are guarding a gate that is the entrance to the estate. I remember seeing it a long time ago before I even knew who these people were. Well, uh, Erskine and Sarah put those statues up when they lived there, I think in 1927. Um, so a friend of mine who lives in Santa Cruz, um, teaches there, saw that there was a for sale sign for the property. And she said, you should call the realtor and see if he'll let you see it. And I thought, yeah, right. But I did. I called him and the guy said, yes, you know, next time you come out, uh, I'll like, take you in so you can see it. So I made a point of going as soon as I could and was able to see the property for the first time. It's always been private property. And uh, it is very much as Erskine and Sarah created it, the grounds, the pieces of art, the statues, the benches, the house itself, uh, all pretty much the same. Um, there had only been one other owner. After, no, I'm sorry. Yes, I believe only one, only one on the, of other owner after Sarah sold it. Uh, so, um, and I'm hoping that whoever bought it will will honor uh, them and the beauty of the property and keep it uh, as it had been intended by Sarah and Erskine. But anyway, that becomes the place where they finally realize happiness as a couple. All of the issues that divided them earlier in life have disappeared. Um, there's still pain and uh, heartbreak related to both families. That's inevitable, I think. But they also are able to create um, a life of poetry and beauty that they had always hoped for. So um, in some respects, uh, a story that is, as I say, riven with conflict and pain and hurt and tragedy does have a, a, a happy ending. Uh, at least in terms of uh, the two central characters of the story. Why did Erskine and Sarah finally decide to marry in 1938, five years after his wife's death? In your response, please address the 1955 selling of the cats, which you alluded to, Sarah's move to Oakland for financial reasons, and finally her 1974 passing. Both of them truly were committed to the concept of free love. And maybe I should say what they meant by that again is love that comes naturally to two people that does not need to be sanctioned by church or state, and in fact should not be sanctioned by church and state, 
if that means that they can never part. Uh, again, personal freedom to love, but personal freedom to leave when you no longer love, they thought was essential to happiness in relationships and to happiness in life. So both of them were very much committed to that idea and in their own relationship um, lived it. But Erskine is such a fascinating character because he is always a bundle of contradictions. Um, we pointed out some of these earlier in our conversation. What happens by the late 30s is he's getting to be an old man and he had a heart attack and thought he was going to die. He actually did not die at that point, largely because his one of his daughters who lived nearby and Sarah took such great care of him. But in the course of recovering from the heart attack, as a lawyer, he began to think, gosh, had I died, would I have left Sarah in any way susceptible to problems in inheriting the property that I want her to inherit that might be in my name? So for a strictly legal um, reason, he begins to think that perhaps they ought to actually marry after all. And so, he, by the way, he has a son named Erskine, the one he sent to live with Chief Joseph, who was also a lawyer. And I think he consulted with his son Erskine about this. Erskine was much more conservative than his dad. And Erskine thought that his father was probably right. Not that any of the family would challenge her, but, you know, there might be some other people who would. So Erskine brings this up to Sarah and she's just absolutely shocked. and doesn't want to do it because it's a real violation of what she had given up many things for, uh, that she didn't, did not want to succumb to something like a legality uh, that violated something that was so sacred to her as a, a concept and idea that she was living by. But uh, she could see that it was really, really bothering Erskine. And so she finally agreed, okay, okay, <laughs> we will get married, but I don't want anybody to know about this. And so they had a rabbi uh, come down from San Francisco and with a minimal talk of anything possibly related to either church or state, he married them with, I think, I think there were two witnesses and they never spoke about it. They never celebrated the wedding uh, anniversary. They never told any of their friends that they got married. It was strictly the hard, practical sort of uh, thing to do. Uh, that Erskine felt was necessary just to protect Sarah. Now, I will say over the course of time, um, they would, she would sometimes be introduced as Mrs. Wood. Um, they saw themselves as married, uh, but not uh, in a legal sense. They saw themselves as truly married. Uh, but in terms of most of the time, she went by Sarah Bardfield. And certainly in her published poetry, she went by Sarah Bardfield. But this was uh, I think an interesting little twist at the end that the the practical Erskine um, had a sort of had his way uh, over the more philosophical Erskine, and Sarah had to go along with him, or decided to go along with him. Let's see, what else did you ask me um, about? If you can touch on uh, the selling of the cats, and then uh, her move to Oakland, and then Sarah's ultimate uh, passing. Okay. Erskine lived another six years, actually. He died in uh, January of 1944, had a very peaceful uh, death. Uh, you know, I, every time I read Sarah's letter to Erskine's son, Erskine about it, it still brings tears to my eyes. Uh, I, sometimes I found Erskine and Sarah exasperating. Sometimes I didn't like them very much. Uh, they disappointed me. Um, I think some of the choices they made were really bad. But I 
couldn't have spent so much time with them as I did. And I spent many, many months reading these letters and getting to know them without having some sympathy for them as well. So, you know, when he dies, I felt, I felt sad and you know, I felt sad. Um, and of course, Sarah was devastated because she had made him the centerpiece of her life for uh, 30 uh, some years by this point. But she was a strong woman. She had things to do. She was only in her 60s when he died. And so she stayed at the Cats for another 10 years. But finally, by the mid-50s, had decided that she really could no longer handle the estate and that it would have to be sold. So she did sell it in 1955. She had one, her daughter, of course, survived. And her daughter had married um, a man who was a professor of English at Berkeley, at the University of California, which was lovely for Sarah to have her daughter fairly close. And also Erskine's daughter lived in San Rafael, not too far away. So she had family close to her. Uh, but she decided when she left the, the cats that she would move to um, Oakland to be near her daughter, but not too near. So that's how she ended up in Oakland. And I know less about her the last years of her life because, of course, there aren't many letters and she didn't keep a diary by that time. I do know, however, that her involvement in the suffrage movement brought her attention and this is in the context of the 1960s and 70s. I mean, think about it. The, the, the span of this story, Erskine's born in 1852 in the Antebellum period. Uh, Sarah dies in 1974. Um, so she's very much alive and people are beginning to be interested again in the women's suffrage movement, in the women's movement. And so they seek her out. And there's a wonderful, very, very long oral history with her at Berkeley. Uh, that particularly focuses on women's suffrage, but other aspects of her life as well. So that took up some of her time in the uh, 60s. And um, she also really changed and evolved in terms of racial issues, so that by the end of her life, she was reading things like the autobiography of Malcolm X, totally sympathetic to civil rights and recommending that other people uh, read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, so I don't know a great deal other than that about her the last years of her life, but she did, she did die uh, in, in Oakland, California. And uh, where in Erskine's case, there were quite a few obituaries uh, across the country. He was better known than he is now in those days. In Sarah's case, I was only able to find one very short one in the Oakland newspaper, which particularly emphasized her, her role in the women's movement um, and in the suffrage movement. Uh, but I wish I knew more about those later years than I do. Well, thank you for uh, being on the podcast today, uh, Professor Smith. Um, I hope the readers do uh, dive into your book. There's a couple of things we missed, like uh, her string of abortions and uh, other political activities that I that I hope uh, the readers um, dive into. I do have one final question. I know you're recently emerita, but what's uh, your plan for? Uh, What's next for you? Or do you have any future projects you're working on or anything like that? Well, you know, I'm not quite sure. I'm thinking about doing something that's more of a personal uh, memoir, uh, but, but that may not be of great interest to people beyond my family. So I'm, I'm really not sure what I'm going to do next. The Huntington Library, where I did my research for this project, has been closed. But when I go back, I'm hoping to find something new that will catch my eye and allow me to, um, to dive into it like this one. I, I do want to thank you for having me on this program and, and tell people that this is a book that is primarily about a relationship that's rather unusual, 
but it's also about the relationship between person, people's personal lives and the political context in which they live and how those two things really shape and reshape one another. So Sarah's involvement in the suffrage movement, for instance, had profound impacts on her relationship with, with Erskine. And the issues that matter to them are very much issues that are still relevant to people today, whether it's how do you, how do you live a life and how do you, who do you marry? And what about children when marriages go awry? Um, from those sort of personal matters and how they worked them out or didn't work them out to the political issues of their day, which we're still, I think, grappling with as a country uh, in, in kind of remarkable and maybe sad kinds of ways that we still haven't addressed uh, 100 years later. So, so thank you so much for this opportunity to tell their story, but also to make it clear to people that this isn't simply a story about a kind of uh, out there relationship, but a story about human beings who are trying to create a new life and a new world and the ways in which they succeeded and the ways in which they failed. One of the principal reasons I wanted to read the book. So the book is Bohemians West, Free Love, Family and Radicals in 20th Century America by Sherry Smith, uh, published earlier this year by Heyday Press. Thank you again for being on the show, Professor Smith. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. This is Ryan Tripp. On behalf of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.